So let's go ahead and start our third session together, which is this question, which is curiously phrased, and I'll explain it. It says, what hath Marx to do with Jesus? Now, you might be wondering, why did I include an old English word like hath in this quote? There is a reason why. <laughs> it's because uh, there's an early church uh, father, his name is Tertullian, and he has this very famous quote when dealing with the philosophy of the day in Greco-Roman world and the Jewish-Christian understanding of how the world works. And his basic question what, was, what hath Athens, which is the school of philosophy, to do with Jerusalem, the center of Christianity? His point was, while philosophy is a worldview, philosophy doesn't actually help us to understand theology at all. Philosophy is a school underneath theology, not that theology is a school underneath philosophy. So his point was, while the secular philosophers have many good things to say, many of the things that they say, they simply stole from scripture. They stole from the Jewish people, they stole as they saw fit, but it was all revelation from God. So his question was, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? His whole point was, Athens has taken a lot of things already from Jerusalem. We don't have anything to learn from them. We have it all sufficiently in our canon of scripture. That was his point. So he didn't see philosophy as being particularly helpful for Christians because they had the highest source of philosophy available to them. So I've asked the question this way because there's a huge debate going on in the church, don't know if you know or not, <laughs> about the writings and the teachings of the philosopher, the economist Karl Marx. Can the church learn and benefit from the things that he taught? Can the church grow in its understanding of the world around it because of his theories of how the world worked? That's the question that's being asked right now. So we're going to ask the question, what hath Marx to do with Jesus? Does he have, so Marx, the founder of critical theory, uh, and then uh, Jesus, uh, the founder of Christianity. So um, you could argue that it goes, anyway. Um, so we're going to try to carefully, in, in now 18 minutes, <laughs> tackle all of those topics listed on the, on the board up there and on your paper. Um, what is critical theory? What is critical race theory and intersectionality? Many of you might have heard this. You might have office places that provide diversity, equity, and inclusion or diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And then what are the dangers of equity? And so I've kind of showed my hand a little bit on the front end. I don't think I'm in danger of that. Um, you probably, uh, anyway, we'll just get into it. <laughs> well, um, so critical theory. For those of you who, who are not familiar with critical theory, I'm going to try to give you as basic a rundown as I can. Um, critical theory is very similar to remember what we learned in our first session about Gnosticism. Depending on who you ask and when you ask it, someone might have a very different opinion on what exactly these terms mean and how they apply. So what I'm going with is the critical theory as it was espoused to the books that I read when I was about two years ago. Uh, some famous books you might be familiar with, such as White Fragility or How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. Those are books that are the common teachings on these topics today. So I'm going with their definitions from their own words, okay? So I'm not trying to take anything out of context or misrepresent it. I'm just representing their theories as uh, they understand it. Critical theory understands the world as you, as a person, fall into one of two categories of people. You are either oppressors of other people or you are the oppressed class. You may be wondering, how did Karl Marx come up with this? Karl Marx understood the world, specifically economics, to work under the elite ruling class and essentially the oppressed layman. 
And his theory of economics was if you empowered the impressed layman to, sh to throw off their shackles and to seize the means of production, then you would achieve essentially this utopian society where everyone would get exactly equal wealth, no one would be in need. And so Karl Marx is the founder of communism, but his foundational theology, his foundational philosophy of the world was that there is no God. And so the only way to understand power is something that is negative and that can corrupt the humans. So the way to deal with that is you distribute power evenly across all people. And then there's no longer going to be this oppressor oppressed dynamic. That makes sense. So Karl Marx started the ball on these ideas. Now you might be asking the question, well, how do I know whether I fall into the oppressor category or the oppressed category as defined by critical theory? How you fall into these camps uh, is you have to figure out what group you're a part of. So it's not who you are as an individual, it's what group you're a part of. Are you part of a group of people that's the oppressing class or are you part of a group of people that is the oppressed class? So critical theory would say that all relationships ever that have ever existed can be summed up into these two categories. So if you've ever been in a relationship with someone or if you're currently in a relationship with someone, your relationship can be distilled down into an oppressor-oppressed dynamic. Who's the oppressor who holds power and who is the oppressed, the one who does not hold power and is at the mercy of the oppressor. All human interactions can be distilled down to these two fundamental ideas. Not just large group interactions, also individual interactions. And you can start to understand just by thinking through that a little bit, how problematic that becomes for Christians who would say that relationship and fellowship is the very foundation of who we are as a community. That's one of the things we embrace. So how can you have fellowship if you're always suspicious of someone, whether they're oppressing you or whether you're oppressing them? What kind of fellowship can you have? So cr that's critical theory. It has this theory of the world. What critical race theory does is it expands on the basic assumptions of critical theory that there is the oppressors and the oppressed. And it says that we know how you fall into oppressor and oppressed, we can tell you based on what group you're in. Critical race theory has different categories of people. And it says that if you're part of the dominant category, as we define it, then you're an oppressor. And if you're part of the minority category, then you're the oppressed, regardless of whether you hold wealth, power, anything like that. So things that would fall under their categories of power would be something like race. I mean, it's, it's in the word right there, critical race theory. So what race you are, and by that they mean as defined within the last uh, 200 years in the Western world, race, uh, if you're black, white, Asian, Latinx, and yes, they will summarize people into groups. So Asian, you don't get a difference of you know where you're from. In critical theory, if you're Asian, you're all the same in terms of you're oppressed because you're not. I'm just, I'm teaching you critical theory, okay? Don't, this is not Z, this is critical theory, okay? <laughs> Because remember, individualism is not important. It's what group you're a part of. So your race is, the, is a defining characteristic. In fact, critical theory would argue that race is the highest of the things that determines whether you're in the oppressor or the oppressed camp. But it can get complicated from there. So race, while it is the top category, let me make that go away. While race is the top most important category, the one that's easiest to tell where you stand in society, there are other things that would fall underneath race. And these are what we would call intersectionalities. So you might be aware that you have more group identifying marks than just what race someone would classify you in or what you would fill out on a job application. There are more things. So for example, whether you are, let me think about how to carefully word this, uh, what gender you are. I'm not gonna go into the specifics because critical theory would dis disagree with me on what gender is and exactly how it's applied, but what gender you are 
changes and uh, and according to critical theory, what gender you are, uh, whether you're aligned with the gender society perceives you as, uh, you are in a certain kind of privilege. So what gender you are and also how you express that gender. So expression, uh, your uh, sexual orientation, um, whether you are an immigrant, um, whether you are disabled, And there's, the list can go on, and depending on which book you're reading and whether it's been published in the last two years or not, it will have maybe a, a definitely a longer list than this. I'm, I'm going off books that are about two years old, so um, the list is just this long, but it, it has changed since those books were published. So the inter how intersectionality works is if you are of a certain race, let's just give an example, let's say you're a black person, you are of an oppressed race in a white majority society. So you are the oppressed in that group. The white people are the oppressors. But if you're a black male, you're less oppressed than a black female because you're of a privileged class in terms of your gender because you're a male, not a female. So it, it kind of breaks out from there. If, you, uh, if your sexual orientation is heterosexual, you are the oppressor group because that's the dominant group in society. And the oppressed group is anyone who is not heterosexual. Previously, that would be uh, homosexual or same-sex attracted. But that could also be someone who's pansexual or bisexual. Those are all categories that they would fit under the oppressed group. So if you are uh, a black man, uh, you are oppressed by society. But if you're a gay black man, you're more oppressed. Does that make sense? So intersectionality is trying to spell out in, in as much detail as it's able to by putting people in broad categories. Where do you fall on the totem pole of society? Are you part of the oppressor group or are you part of the oppressed group? And how does that work if there are two people who are both part of the same race, but would have different opinions on things? So where this all comes together, where this all comes to a head, is the idea from critical theory that in order to rightly understand any situation, you need to hear from people who are lower on the totem pole than you. So the idea of critical theory is that someone who's lower on the totem pole than you can speak into your reality, they can understand your reality, and they can understand the realities above that as well, but you cannot understand their reality because you're above them on the totem pole. You are less oppressed, and so therefore you cannot possibly understand what they're going through. So you need to listen to them, and they have a kind of moral authority or a moral weight. And depending how low on the, on the oppressed scale they go, the more oppressed they are, the more moral authority they have, so actually the more power they command in any kind of situation or interaction. If you think about that, uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But this is what critical race theory espouses. So you are no longer an individual with your own background and set of experiences. You are whatever society has determined race category you fit into. You are whatever society has determined your gender to be whatever society says your sexual orientation is, all of those things, all of those identity category markers are the things, those are, those are who you are. You're not a person with a personality and with a set of interests. You are whatever group you fit into. That is where you fit in society. So, and so the reason that this is important to spell out in critical race theory is because depending on where you fit in society, you can understand whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed in any situation and you can act in response accordingly. 
because ultimately truth comes from the oppressed group and they can speak into the oppressors, but the oppressors have lost or have moral bankruptcy, if you will. They don't have the ability to speak into any other group. So people who are bought into these kinds of theories would say things like, for example, if we're having a discussion like we're, we are now, if I bought into this theory, I would have started off with apologizing for the fact that I'm a straight white male and that I express as a straight white male. But I didn't because I don't buy into this. And you shouldn't either, and I'm gonna tell you why as we go on. But if you, if you read books, people will say, well, why do I have the moral authority to speak on this issue? And they'll try to justify and explain why they have the moral authority to speak on this issue. That's someone who's bought into at least the basic categories of these things. They feel a need to explain themselves and their superiority. Does that make sense? So no longer are you an individual, you are part of whatever race, gender, class you're part of. So you'll hear things like um, cisgendered, which is, a, which is a way to categorize people who are not transgender, but in a way that makes transgender people feel included and that they're not the, the odd ones out. Um, you will hear heterosexual and homosexual as terminology or bisexual, pansexual, as, as opposed to just straight. That is no longer considered a good term because you have to, say, you have to categorize even if you're in the dominant camp, you have to categorize which, which camp you fall into. You will hear able-bodied versus disabled because they don't want to say that um, having a disability is any, in any way a bad thing. So therefore, able-bodied is also a category you have to self-identify as. And some of these things are categories you can switch between and some of them are not. You cannot switch your race. If you have paid attention to media, people try to do this and they, they have done this and they get caught doing it and then they get canceled. You can't switch your race, but you can switch your gender. This is totally fair game. You can totally switch this, according to critical theory. You can totally switch your sexual orientation. Even though this is an innate identifying marker about who you are, you can switch it. You can change that about yourself, but you can't change your race. You cannot, even if you are a naturalized citizen in a country, you can never shake your immigrant status. That makes sense? So this is, this is just me trying to explain to you critical theory. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Okay, we'll just go for it, yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Told you no questions later? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I <laughs> Five minutes. <laughs> Five minutes you can ask questions. So, now, how you, now you might be asking the question, I've never been taught this explicitly, but I do recognize this right here. If you've worked in a workplace for any length of time, you might have heard of what's called a, a D, that's a, sorry, a D-E-I office, or D-E-I officers or people who are responsible for making sure that diversity, equity, and inclusion are met within a company or an organization. So you will have meetings maybe once a month. If you were like me when I was in the public school system, it was uh, every Tuesday and Thursday, you all met together and talked about these kinds of issues. And so what this is trying to do is it's trying to level the playing field between all people. So all the people who express in different kinds of diversities as they would shake out in critical theory, they must be even across the board. There can be no difference. There can be no difference in performance. There can be no difference in pay. There can be no difference in outcomes. There can be no difference in employment status. And there can be no difference in the company. That's diversity. Inclusion would mean that we are actively trying to make sure everyone from these various camps are represented in our meetings. So if someone is not like me in every single way, they can't represent me. If they're more oppressed than me, they can maybe represent me. But if they're less oppressed than me, they certainly can't represent me. So then people have a problem with, for example, uh, straight white males in leadership because that person could not possibly represent my interests because that person does not come from my particular form of oppression. But if someone is more oppressed than me, they could totally represent me just fine. 
So the moral authority is carried over even into these kinds of expressions. Now, I want to talk for a brief moment about the danger of equity. And for this, I want to flip back to, again, we've, we've been breaking down critical theory. I want to talk about this from a, from a theological standpoint. And make no mistake, all of this falls under the category of theology. But the danger of equity, fundamentally, is that if you believe equity is a, a necessary thing for goodness to be the case, uh, you're going to run into a lot of theological problems right away. For those of you who, who would see equity and you say, well, how is that different than equality? Equality means an equal chance at something. Equity means an equal outcome of something. So for example, when Jesus tells the parable of how he gives some people five talents, some people two, and one guy one, and those people have different outcomes at the end of that uh, investment, Jesus has now become an unjust violator of this system because he didn't give equity of outcome for everybody involved. Equity, if you buy into equity and you say this is a must for moral goodness, God violates equity all the time. We know this because you were born into a different family than the person sitting next to you. Probably. I don't know. No siblings? Okay, great. <laughs> Even if you were, you were born at a different time. You were born to, uh, possibly to a different uh, uh, class in society than somebody sitting next to you. You were born in a different state, potentially in a different country. All of those things represent inequities, things that are making you different from someone else that God was in control of, and he decided to put you in your station in life. And so God becomes the ultimate violator of equity. And so that's the danger of buying into this thinking, is you would say that God is really the first person to blame. If you believe in a sovereign God, you cannot believe in this. Or if you do believe in a sovereign God and you do believe in this, you can say that that God is certainly not good. And then we're back to ancient church problems, the problem of evil, the problem of the moral goodness of God. So that's the danger of buying into these things. It's one level of danger if your company that you work for buys into this. You have to sit through some meetings. You might have to have some uncomfortable conversations. It's another thing for a church to buy into this. Because when a church buys into this, the church has to make all kinds of compromises and flips with its theology to get around these kinds of categories. And so churches, uh, and there are churches that are in danger of doing this. There are churches that have changed how they interpret scripture in light of these things. In fact, when we get into the next session, I'm going to read you from, from commentaries that I have that are sitting on my shelf from people who used to be trustworthy people, and they're espousing these kinds of ideas, that someone who is of a superior class cannot possibly understand the plight of the inferior, and it leads to all kinds of theological problems, and that, that's what we're really going to spend the rest of our time together exploring.